Welcome to Week in Review, where we recap events and issues pertinent to Central Illinois. I'm WMBD Radio News Director Will Stevenson. On Friday, after several days of testimony, a Peoria County jury found 42-year-old Brandon Walker guilty of murder in the death of 8-year-old Navin Jones. As you may recall, Navin's mother, 37-year-old Stephanie Jones, pleaded guilty last week, but instead of testifying as part of the plea agreement, she took the fifth, claiming testifying would result in a loss of liberty. As you may recall, young Navin was found to have been the victim of abuse and starvation in March of 2022 when he died. The jury, as part of its verdict, found that the abuse was done with exceptionally heinous or brutal behavior. Peoria County State's Attorney Jody Hoos, who was at a conference and not in the courtroom for the verdict, issued the following statement, quote, My office, this jury, and our community have cared more for Navin in his death than his parents ever did in life. Good riddance to them, end quote. The only side to speak in front of our microphones after the verdict was Gary Morris, Brandon Walker's defense attorney. I really wasn't surprised by the verdict because the judge limited the evidence at the trial quite a bit. Uh, he refused to uh, uh, allow us to call Stephanie Jones to the stand and since she pled guilty to the murder as to, uh, to explain why and how she did the murder. Um, jury didn't know that. All they did know is to speculate that the child was last in her care and that uh, she did something to the child. And the state uh, really didn't prove anything as to what she exactly did to the child other than maybe she beat the child and stuff like that. But uh, I saw no connection between the uh, what the uh, doctors testified to and uh, the actions of my client who had not seen the child in 48 hours before uh, uh, he was made aware that the child had died under Stephanie Jones' care. If you were able to get Stephanie on the stand and use her yeah. guilty plea yeah. as evidence, do you think there may have been a different outcome? Oh, definitely. She says some things in an interview which the judge kept out, showing that she hated my client and that she hated the two boys and that uh, she was a mental case and that uh, she was depressed. Uh, all those things she said in an outside statement, which this judge kept out so the jury did not know, so that uh, they might, obviously I'm guessing that the jury thought that somehow my client was working in tandem with her, but no, they were estranged, and she did her own thing, and he did hers. But I think the jury, uh, unfortunately, fell for the idea that somehow, because they're boyfriend and girlfriend, that they uh, acted together, which is not the case. Oh, yes. Oh, definitely. The, the decision of the judge not allowing a person to testify is pretty serious. And that's what he did in this case. Can you imagine if you can't call a witness to the stand? But that's what the judge did. And the state attorney in collaboration did. They prevented a witness from testifying, which we felt was important. She was the murderess. She's the one that did the murder. She did it. We all know that she did it. And yet we were not allowed to call her to the stand. As far as, you know, um, Gary, it was a very tense, tense trial. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of sparring back and mm -hmm. forth. How, how much do you think that emotion played in? 
it though. No, I don't think it's really well. There's emotion because of the serious death, death of the child, but I think it was more that the jury was uh, denied certain evidence that I think they would have come up with a diff different decision if that was put into evidence. Uh, that's the main factor. It sounds like this would be a case of first in first impression, given the fact that you, the prosecutor, and the judge had never really encountered some of the like. Well, I never had uh, rulings, because not everyone has that many murder trials under their uh, belt, but uh, I'm sure we, I, you heard the judge remark he had never had to make rulings like this before. I think that's very accurate. Uh, they're seldom ruled upon, and unfortunately, uh, the, uh, the judge's determination that uh, uh, Stephanie Jones did not have to take the stand uh, really hurt our case. What um, now, Gary? Well, we're, we're going to appeal, which you have to cite all the errors of the judge within the next 30 days. We have to put them in writing and file them with the court. Then the judge will get one chance at the sentencing hearing before we start it to uh, correct any mistakes he made uh, that we cite to him. And then uh, uh, if he doesn't think he made any mistakes, then he will proceed with sentencing, and then my client will go to prison. Did you talk to Brandon immediately after the verdict was read? And if you did, what did he say to you? Uh, yeah, I did talk to him. Uh, he was uh, waiting um, there, uh, and uh, he—he he was very concerned whichever way the jury was going to return a verdict. You know, is that's about all I can comment, not knowing what was going to happen. How did he seem after the verdict? Well. Uh, He's ready to go forward on appealing, and uh, uh, so are, are we. And uh, it was my job to protect him and uh, make a good record of what the mistakes were, and I think I did. Gary Morris, Brandon Walker's attorney. Walker is scheduled to be sentenced February 28th. Stephanie Jones will be sentenced February 7th. More Week in Review coming up. Long talked about cuts to programs and majors at Bradley University became official early this week. Some 20 different programs will be cut or offered in other ways, while 38 faculty positions are also being cut. Another 23 faculty jobs will be reduced through attrition. You can find the full list in the local news section of WMBDradio.com. WMBD's T.J. Carson talked with Bradley President Stephen Standiford about the moves and what's changed in the last month or so. Now that the cuts are done um, yeah. and the process is done, uh, yeah. talk about what that process was like, what the past month has been like. Yeah, so one of the things we did over the last 30 days is uh, on November 6th, we announced programs that were being considered for discontinuation, and I really wanted to use the last 30 days to get feedback from my colleagues, specifically from the department chairs, to help us understand uh, and discover whether there's anything that we, we may have missed that we didn't know and give us a little bit more clarity on the decisions we were making. And as a result, we did make a couple of adjustments. Uh, we have two programs that we are uh, not discontinuing, and then the other ones we're moving forward with. How much feedback did you receive uh, from students, staff, and the community as a whole in regards to these cuts? Yeah, so we've received a fair amount of feedback in all kinds of different forms from a lot of different people. Uh, the one that was uh, really important to me is, obviously, I wanted to hear from the students. We've had a student forum. I've had uh, smaller group conversations with our students. 
Uh, the reality is our students' feedback has been part of this process from the very beginning because uh, it was really their interest in the programs in terms of enrollment that, that, that drove much of the decision-making here. So the students have been a key part of the decision process from the very beginning. The other key feedback, and especially over the last 30 days, is I wanted to, uh, the provost and I, the Senior Vice President of Academic Affairs and I, uh, meant individually with each one of the chairs and also gave them an opportunity to give us written feedback just so we can really understand uh, the impact of some of the decisions we were making to make sure we were getting the decisions right. It sounds like you prioritize student uh, feedback yeah. above uh, most other feedback. Was there anything in that student Correct. feedback that uh, stood out to you that might have swayed your decision one way or another? Yeah, the one, the, in terms of the student feedback, the most important thing that influenced our decision making was are these programs that are of particular interest uh, and, and perceived as needs and interest of today's students. So the underlying information that was really most impactful was looking, for example, at five-year enrollment trends. And one of the things that we were very careful about is making sure we really understood what those enrollment trends look like. And the programs that we are discontinuing, unfortunately, are just not in demand by today's students. Were there any personal stories that you heard throughout this whole process that might have helped uh, your decision making, anything that might have swayed you? You know, there, there are a lot of personal stories that went throughout. And one of the things I can say without question is our faculty across the board do a really positive job of positively impacting our students. And of course, we heard a lot of that as well. Ultimately, though, I had to look at the numbers and really understand where were are, where are we having the biggest impact on really servicing the needs and interests of today's students? And that was really the, the driving force behind the decision. Now the decisions have been made, what were some of the final yeah. determinations in whether a program or a position at the university got saved or got cut? Yeah, so, so the, the ultimate, I'm gonna sound very repetitive and I apologize for that, but it really is at the heart of everything we've done. Um, the ultimate decision-making came down to, is this a program that meets the needs and interests of today's students? And if it is, then it's a program that we want to continue to offer. And it is, if it is not, that is unfortunately a, a program we needed to consider discontinuing. That, that is and will continue to be our primary focus, really understanding how we best serve the needs and interests of today's students. Talking about a couple of those programs, public health education yeah. and manufacturing engineering technology, uh, yeah. what stood out about those two that led to them being saved? Yeah. So for both of the programs, uh, manufacturing engineering technology and public health, for both of these programs, one of the things that the chairs were, help, were, were able to help me understand better is uh, how these programs really are serving the needs and interests of today's students and what they can do to make sure these programs continue to be successful moving forward. And in fact, continue to improve how they're handling and, and meeting those needs. And the fact that they were able to provide compelling arguments to me on how these programs really do and can continue to improve how they, how they really meet the needs of today's students was an important part of that decision-making process. What were some of those factors with those two programs? Is there a stat or a personal story that stood out to you that made you change your mind on them? So a couple of things when we were looking at programs, uh, one of the things we would look at is to what extent does this program, uh, quite frankly, fit in the portfolio of what we do? So how does it align with other programs on campus? A good example, for example, is in our public health space. We know that our nursing students, if they decide not to be a nursing student, public health is a program they may actually consider. So that's something that was a factor 
in our decision making. The other piece was a real thoughtful response by the chairs to help me understand that if the program isn't satisfying the needs to the best of their ability today, what type of programmatic changes are we going to make moving forward to make sure that it does so? And I, I got great feedback on that. Uh, and that's partly why we made some of the decisions that we made. The faculty positions, there was, it was projected to be higher than what was actually cut today. Uh, was that due to the programs being saved, or were there other factors that saved uh, some of those jobs? Yeah, so there are a couple factors going into the final count of the faculty positions. One, of course, was the programs that we are no longer discontinuing that had an impact. The other thing we did is there are several areas, uh, math, philosophy, religious studies, international studies, a number of areas where uh, we are no longer offering the major, but those are areas that will continue to be part of our overall curriculum. And one of the things we've done over the last 30 days is to really understand, for example, the impact all of this has on our Bradley Core curriculum, on our ability to, to support the majors throughout the campus. And there are a couple positions that we made the decision that while the major will discontinue, we will continue to have faculty in place to meet those needs. And that made some adjustments in how we uh, figured in the final numbers. One thing I wanted to ask you about was the reports of that email you sent to students and staff announcing those cuts today and uh, reports yeah. that you acknowledged there was uncertainty and anxiety on campus. What, what have you noticed yeah. in the past month in terms of mood and thoughts on campus and within the Bradley community in relation yeah. to these cuts? Yeah, so, so, so change is challenging, right? And these are, these are really challenging changes for the community, and I, I understand and I appreciate that. Uh, that is something that, that I have felt throughout this entire process. And it's part of the reason that I wanted to be what I would describe as thorough and expeditious in this process. Uh, one of the things that I know has been a concern for the number of individuals is the pace at which these changes have happened. But I thought it was really important that we finalize these decisions as, as, as appropriately as possible so that we can release that veil of uncertainty and really let people understand uh, the decisions that are being made. One of the things we heard in some of the protests from students in regards to the cuts was numbers cited by the university that about three, three and a half percent of the student body would be affected by these cuts. But they say all students will be affected in some way in regards yeah. to the cuts. Uh, how do you respond to that? What do you say to that where students are saying everyone's going to be affected in some way? Look, any change we make at the university, and, and, and it, we're, we're a pretty integrated community. I'm, I'm sensitive to that. Any changes we make anywhere with anything we do has the potential to impact every student. I am aware of that. Uh, and that would be true for the changes we're about to make as well. What we know is that in terms of the students whose majors are being discontinued, it impacts less than 3% of our students. Yeah. So now the cuts have been announced, they're finalized. What's the next step in the process? Yeah, so the next step in the process is one of the things we need to do is we need to sit down and really understand what the timing of the phase out of the programs look like. One of the things we're absolutely committed to is that every student that is currently studying a major here at Bradley has the opportunity to complete that major here. So we'll do what's called a teach out phase. And so some of our programs where the numbers are particularly small or in some cases students are no longer there, we can make that decision earlier. For other programs, we will have to keep that program on the books and continue to run that program for a number of years to allow the students that are currently in the program to successfully complete that program. That is an analysis our Senior Vice President of Academic Affairs is doing right now. 
And once we get more clarity about that, we'll be able to talk about the phase out process of those programs. Is this it for planned cuts uh, to spending or could more come down the line? You know, it's interesting. One of the things that I've been pretty clear about on campus here is that uh, this is we, we've had to make some really tough decisions, and uh, that has been an important part of this process. One of the things we have to do moving forward, and, and the way we make sure that we're not making this kind of move again 10 years from now, is to start engaging in a continuous assessment process. I, I genuinely believe the cuts we're making here combined with other cost reductions we're doing at the university combined with new revenues will get us to a balanced budget. And the way we stay there is to continually assess the offerings of the university and make sure they are effectively meeting the needs and interests of today's students. What would that assessment include uh, if the university went forward with that? Yeah, I mean, one of the things we'll be doing on an annual basis is, is really trying to understand what are the programs that are, are, are meeting the needs of today's students and are students signing up for those programs. So we'll continue to look at things like marginal contribution analysis. We'll continue to look at enrollment trends. And as a healthy institution, it's something that we have to pay attention to on an annual basis. Bradley University President Stephen Standiford with WMBD's TJ Carson. Again, go to WMBDRadio.com for more. More Week in Review coming up. The Peoria City Council will need a little more time to discuss changes to policies relating to Airbnbs in the city or short-term rentals. A nearly hour-long discussion on the topic at Tuesday's meeting was deferred to a future meeting next month. City administration cited two recent cases of concern with short-term rental properties as a need for tougher enforcement. One case involves a homeowner operating a short-term rental without a special use or license since August and refusing to pay a fine of $13,500. The property owner says essentially he can do whatever he wants with his property. The other problem includes a house rented for three days in October that resulted in multiple noise complaints, cars parked on the street that blocked access to homes, and property damage to a neighboring home. One of the changes proposed including the rental amount of housing units that could be used as a short-term rental from a 3% cap in a quarter-mile radius to a 1% cap in a half-mile radius. would also set a minimum distance of 1,500 feet separating each short-term rental in a neighborhood. Another proposal would give city administration more authority to approve properties without city council approval. Here's part of the city council discussion from Tuesday night on the matter. Councilmember Euler. Thank you, Madam Chairwoman. I uh, plan to be amicable to some of the proposed changes here, but I guess I just feel the need to address the calling the proposal here as a result of excessive complaints when the example is two. One of those two doesn't count at all because it was never approved by us. So we talk ad nauseum about this subject, yet we don't talk about the normal month-to-month -month rental, the student housing rentals, heck, even the property owners 
that sit in here for code violations. We have to have staff just to deal with all of the complaints that those entities provide, yet we go in circle after circle over a handful of people related to this specific issue. So it seems very disingenuous to present it that way. And there seems to me like a, a very mixed message amongst this group when we think that this is one of the biggest issues that we have, yet we have out-of-state landlords running rampant in our neighborhoods, but we're not dealing with that, and we're not doing anything to regulate and clean that up. But we just want to talk about this one or two short-term rentals. Thank you. Councilmember Sear. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Uh, we will have, I'm sure, more discussion, but I'd, I'd like to, uh, to move uh, to make a motion but before i do i want to say thank you to mr hayes for a great explanation tonight i especially like the, uh, how you stress on the uh, importance of waivers that gives us overall at, at the end of the day we still have control because of these waivers so thank you for explaining that to to all of us and and all of us here been well most of us been around for three or four years that we've been working on this i don't think it'll ever be perfect but i really like what we have accomplished so far so thank you everybody Thank you, Director Doolin, and to your staff. Uh, I, I really like what we have developed so far. So my motion uh, is as follows. Uh, I move for the council to direct staff to seek the recommendation of the Planning Zoning Commission on amendments to the City Unified Development Code to implement the changes to short-term rental zoning regulation as recommended by the staff. But in addition, I'd like to change all short-term rentals to permitted use subject to those zoning regulation. Is there a second? Seconded by Council Member Kelly. Council Member Kelly. Uh, thank you, Madam Mayor. I'll speak to the motion. This is something that, <clears throat> that I have been uh, pushing for ever since we passed the uh, short-term rental <clears throat> uh, ordinance and regulations. The idea that a person can follow all the rules and have, uh, you know, perfect approval and come here and for whatever arbitrary reason, we decide, no, I think, I, as I've said before, I think it's bad law. Uh, it's arbitrary. Nobody knows. Nobody knows what the law is. Um, and so I'm uh, very much in favor of... Uh, Councilman Sears motion and I hope that the council will go along with that and then we'll continue our discussion. Thank you, Madam Mayor. You're welcome. Councilmember Graham. Um, Corporation Council Hayes, um, could you translate what you think the intended impact would be if we approved the motion as outlined by Councilman Sear, what would be different about the way council would be responding to these versus status quo situation under our current order of business? So the um, council would not in the ordinary course of business see or see approved uh, short-term rental uh, licenses that are issued as permitted uses um, that meet all the criteria. 
the criteria that we're discussing here about proximity would apply. Uh, we'd start applying that across the board to all short-term rentals. There is a class of short-term rentals right now that are approved that, you know, under um, our different zoning classifications right now that are permitted uses. And so that would, that would go on and there'd just be an expanded set of opportunities for people to get short-term rentals. It would be an easier process from the business side. The council would see issues where individuals felt that the, that either the short-term rental decisions were incorrect or that even if they were correct, they were seeking a waiver. So in our zoning ordinance provisions, individuals that are up against a restriction mm -hmm. with regard to a use can ask the council to waive those issues. And if so, if the council on receipt of the recommendation from the Planning and Zoning Commission decides to waive that restriction, they can grant the use. And it's sim that would be then similar to the special uses. I imagine that we would see far fewer of them. As the council knows, I think that um, the council has approved a significant number of these short-term rentals. You know, the council has approved special uses on 49 different occasions for short-term rentals, and they've denied five of them. And so I think the council would see far less they wouldn't see the 49 that you approved and you might not see the five that you've denied. So you wouldn't see the traffic. So, so what we're doing is taking the power away from the people in the neighborhoods to express themselves through their elected representatives. We're curtailing that with this particular recommendation. This is a Trojan horse uh, motion to erode the ability of neighborhoods through their elected representatives to say yes or no to these mini hotels in the neighborhoods. Can't support it. Can't support it. Even if our fraction is less, we still have, have basically uh, abrogated much of the authority that our people currently have to express themselves about what's going in next door. I will never take that power away from the people to communicate with all of us as elected representatives. And I think you made a good point that as it is now, we have not been onerous at all in terms of our review. We've approved a lot of these, but we have been the final resting point which I think is where it should be. That's why we're here. The buck stops with us. I know a lot of you would like to do this. We don't want that hot potato in our district. We don't want it. Take the cup away from us. If you do this, you'll be sorry because there will be some recommended many hotels that will not go over in your district and you will have taken away the power of the people to weigh in. We're going in the wrong direction. Councilmember Kelly. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Uh, the uh, citizens of Peoria have the ability to appear 
and to make their voices heard at the zoning commission. Uh, an applicant has the ability to appeal to the city council. Uh, I'm not riding a Trojan horse. I've been saying the same thing all the way along that if we set the rules and if someone complies by those rules, we empower the zoning commission <clears throat> to give a thumbs up or a thumbs down. The people can and do appear there and we can also appear there if our neighbors uh, ask us uh, to be there. We leave all the rest, or almost all the rest of the zoning decisions of the city of Peoria with the zoning board. And we do not insist on making all these things special uses. Uh, we're quite satisfied with that. And if someone has a beef, then it can come to the council. So I think that rather than engage in what I would consider to be arbitrary law, we, we allow these to be permitted uses with rights to appeal. Again, a city council vote on the changes to short-term rental properties is expected next month. More Week in Review, coming up. Peoria City Council members also spent a portion of their regular meeting this week discussing what to do with an available round of violence prevention funding. Around $1.2 million is available to be spent by June 30th, 2024. 700000 of that amount came from a request for a proposal, while the remaining half million comes from the Illinois Department of Human Services for efforts focused on youth. Multiple council members suggested using funds to add street lighting or to brighten areas of Peoria. That part of the discussion was led by 3rd District Councilman Tim Riggenbach. Here's part of that extended council discussion. Um, Mr. Manager, perhaps you and the chief could get us a list of what the initial priorities are. Maybe you already sent that email and I missed it, but um, $500,000 is a lot. So I think we need to know that before January as to what they're looking at. And I certainly hope Director Doolin is intimately involved in this marriage because overseeing the CDBG commission, he and his staff have more background information on the players of significance in our community and can definitely give the police department the guidance that they need because um, talking about giving grant money to organizations that need help with capacity makes me a little nervous. Um, I think we've all, we all want to help the smaller entities, but we want to make sure that there's accountability for that because this, this could just really go the wrong way if we're not careful. So let's make sure that, that there is the appropriate oversight. What, what I would like, um, following up on Councilman Euler's line of questioning about asking the current grantees um, questions, is I would like to know what kind of new programming they've offered with the funding that we provided. Are they 
using our money for existing programs or are they thinking outside the box and using establishing new programs? Because I think that was kind of our intent was that this would be in addition to what they're already providing. So if we're just getting the same old stuff, then we need to know about that. But if there is new ideas being birthed, I also want to be aware of that. As, as we talk about um, these priorities, the thriving neighborhoods, violence reduction, those are the two I starred as I was going through this. I think as a district council member and probably all of us, one complaint we hear repeatedly from our folks in the neighborhood is how dark the streets are, how dark the alleys are, and how you just can't see and you don't know who's there. And I would, I would like to see an idea brought forth for this money um, for, for porch, porch and alley lighting. Mm -hmm. And I've been told there's even technology now that incorporates ring type cameras in some of this lighting. So let's see how, how we could hit some of those hotspots. And I would love to see that information. I hope we get that tomorrow from Mr. Mushan because I, I don't wanna say let's spend $200,000 on, on porch and alley lighting. I wanna say, let's look at where the hotspots are, where the problems are and see how much money it's gonna to take to address that because I think we've been kind of going about this backwards, in my opinion. We, we know the hot spots. Thank you, Mr. Mushan. We appreciate your attention to those details. But let's, let's look. I think we all would agree that better lighting is, is gonna help our constituents feel safer. It's gonna be safer. It's gonna cut down on lots of things right now. So I, I would like to see um, the hotspot map and then I don't know who, who, who would put together some locations, but I would like to see what it would cost to, to illuminate those dark spots in our neighborhoods and see this money spent in a way that we can point, that's where this ARPA money went. Mm -hmm. Restorative justice, Councilman Gordon Young, I think that, that's a tremendous, um, a tremendous thing that we haven't even scratched the surface as of a community. And I know that that's not my forte or anything, but the, the juvenile detention center and the, the number of juveniles on the significant event log every morning just, just tears at our hearts, I think. So I definitely wanna see um, something in that regard, as well as the mental health and substance abuse issues. So lots of good things to talk about, but for me, the number one thing that I wanna hear back is how we can light up those dark streets and alleys. And I think that covers my bullets for right now. Thank you, okay. Madam Mayor. You're welcome. Council Member Jackson. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Well, um, we have some, and I just need to piggyback on what Council Member Riggenbach talked about. As a matter of fact, he, uh, took the words out of my mouth and we talk about thriving neighborhoods well uh, as I've been saying thriving neighborhoods have to be safe neighborhoods and uh, the, for the past uh, what couple of years public works and uh, we finally have gotten Amron off of off up and moving and they have been identifying areas in and around but you talk about hotspots sir hotspots um, 
they're all over the city. I'm going to put it like that. They're just not on the south side or the east bluff, but they have been lighting up alleys. And I'm looking at an email. Uh, you know, we want to think of hotspots always as uh, some impoverished area. But I got an email from one of my constituents last night talking about uh, the shooting up around Bradley, uh, around Fredonia and Cooper. Uh, staple neighborhoods. But apparently, according to this, uh, these these three individuals that have emailed me or texted me, they, they don't have enough lighting in their neighborhood, which um, I wouldn't, I don't know, uh, necessarily consider a traditional hotspot, but apparently uh, violence moves around. And so we, I think lighting has to become a priority, uh, not just in poor neighborhoods, but in areas where we have not even considered. And apparently, uh, these residents are upset enough to suggest that they would like to see more lighting and cameras in and around the areas. Uh, so that, I believe, should be a priority for our entire city. Uh, obviously, there are some areas that tend to be more prone, but as we have seen, um, this activity moves all around the city. Uh, especially as it relates to juveniles. And so uh, I think just uh, simple common sense it would uh, suggest that we should move, remove our brush that has been overgrown throughout the city. I would love to see more people on staff in, in, in code enforcement and public works to do that. And we have to light not only our alleys but our streets. We have many areas where I've had people tell me they, they've got three or four street lights uh, down a six or seven block area. So I, I would like to see us invest more money in our infrastructure uh, as it relates to uh, lighting our streets as well as our alleys, as well as getting away all of this overgrown brush uh, that's all over the city. So thank you, Madam Mayor. You're welcome. And, and one last comment. Um, one of the questions uh, talks about, does the council want to change or modify any of the focus areas. And I've been sitting here thinking about uh, reasons for root causes for crime. I do believe poverty is uh, deeply uh, connected to crime. And um, I, I would hope that we would look at ways we could support some of those nonprofits that are uh, dealing with, in the trenches, uh, some of those root causes of poverty. Uh, and we do have some that are that are working vigorously, but they just need uh, the financial wherewithal to continue doing some of the things they're doing. Thank you. Thank you. Great comments. And I, I think workforce development also gets at that, that poverty issue. City officials say they could have some more information available for council members by their January meeting, at which time a vote could be taken on what to do with the money. That does it for this edition of Week in Review. Join us again next week on this Midwest Communications station for another recap of some of the biggest issues and events in central Illinois. I'm Will Stevenson, WMBD Radio News.